Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. And in this episode, Peter and I are going to try and tackle one of wine's most nebulous terms, minerality. And we're going to try to see. Does it actually make a difference in the wine in terms of being able to sell it? Is there a business aspect to why you want to have something on the label that describes your wine as mineral? Peter, we're back in the saddle. First recording of 2021. Yeah, and interesting topic. I mean, what do you even think of as minerality? What do you think is the definition of that? Well, I kind of went to Google, of course, that's where I start everything. And start off with like, what is a mineral? You know, a solid, inorganic substance of natural occurrence. But then when you drill down into it and actually read a bunch of the articles as we we're doing research for this, this term is like in wine vernacular all the time. And it's used in a wide swath of ways to anything from these kind of like flinty matchsticky aromas to chalk. I taste chalk, things that you taste or smell. And it, and it really became hard to really figure out like what were people talking about. I know that this term isn't a really historical term. It's something that, you know, started in the late 80s, but really in the last like 10, 15 years, it seems like everyone is using it. It's probably one of the most used terms for wine. And honestly, it's almost like a category. How, how would you describe it? For me, it's more like a style of wine. I think there's a lot of different tasting terminologies that build up into the term minerality. So it's sort of, minerality to me is sort of like fruity where there's a lot of subcomponents of it and there's a lot of elements that we talk about as minerality, but or there could be subcomponents of that, whether that's sulfur reduction matchsticky thing or more a saline component or more of that just straight up wet stones or rocky component. That's what in my head is minerality. I'm not sure if that's I think it's people sometimes get confused in terms of whether that's related to the actual soil type or not, or maybe not confused, but use it as a different different vernacular of it being related to soil types versus the taste of the wine. Yeah, I definitely think if you're learning wine for the first time and you're in a tasting class, I don't think that the average person who's tasting a wine is going to say, oh, I get this rock in this glass. It's, I feel like it's a learned behavior that people learn over time. And it sounds romantic, right? It does sound like, oh, Kimmerging soil, I get oyster shells in this wine. And sometimes I do get oyster shells in Flint, but sometimes I don't in my Chablis and in my Sunsetters and things like that. But I- It depends how many oyster shells and rocks you're licking and eating, right? <laughs> exactly. I, I do like I do like my <laughs> And then people like, do you smell it or do you taste it? And there's clear that there are mineral elements like calcium and potassium there's these mineral nutrients that the elements that the plants need and are present in your wine, but they're present in all your food, right? These things are, if you look at the back of the ingredients, there's, it's like you can get your vitamins from <laughs> your food. And so these geological minerals that are like quartz and granite and limestone, those are actually more complex. Those are actually a more complex combination of elements that are together that the plant can't just absorb. In fact, if anything, it would break those down and take whatever it needed from its nutrients from those. And, and you wouldn't be able to dis- discern what the origin of where those minerals came from, from that. I mean, the plant, it's just getting what it needs to survive and, right. and produce, right? Water and bacteria would break those things down over time into their core components. And then the plant might take them up for the nutrients that they need. But that's not actually generating flavor profiles 
into the wine. I think those are different things, right? So there's zero scientific evidence that if a grape is grown on a limestone style, that any part of that limestone actually makes it into the wine, correct? They're still important. I mean, having different minerals, just like taking vitamins, right? You take these like multivitamins and they're vitamins and minerals. They're important in terms of the composition of the wine. Potassium is a great sort of muscle recovery mechanism and it helps LeBron James. It probably, I feel like it helps me not get sick, right? (laughs) When I don't drink wine, then I need to take more vitamins and minerals and more things with potassium to not get sick. So that's the important things. (laughs) Drink wine won't get sick. That's the key takeaway of this episode. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I just, I'm not sure that that really translates into the taste of minerality or when people say, a wine is mineral, right? They're generally talking about the taste and flavor profile of the wine. Right. And so if I had a batch of a rock of limestone or a rock of granite here, and I were to smell them, they don't really have aromas, right? They, you know, if I were to lick them, maybe I would get a textural component to them, but they don't really have taste either, or maybe not dissimilar taste. Even if they did, I'm not sure it would be that different, right? Or or that that's actually what's coming into wines. Right. So from a biology standpoint, when grapevines are extracting the nutrients that it actually does need, that's usually coming from that upper layer of topsoil where most of the the life is happening in the soil. Once you're getting down a meter into the soil, I mean there's it's pretty dead and and really the vines are just looking for water. Yeah, for the most part. So that's not really translating the minerals, the literal minerals that are coming from the soil and the rocks into the vines and into then the grapes and in the wine aren't necessarily translating into what we think of as the minerality flavor of the wine. So when we talk about like the site specific, the terroir of a thing, if we were to be able to isolate and lock all the variables except for the soil type, is there a substantial difference in growing Riesling on granite versus slate? Oh, for sure. Limestone? Now, the difference is whether that translates into a difference in what we would call minerality in wine. So they'll definitely taste different. And one example is that wines that are grown in more like limestone or more basic soils tend to be more acidic, right? And so... If they have higher acid levels, they tend to have more sulfur levels, a more brightness, a different kind of flavor characteristic. People talk about the clay of Bordeaux, meaning it holds more water and more moisture. It ripens later. They tend to be bigger, heavier wines. All those things, you know, the soil makes a big difference in the flavor profile of the wine and is part of that terroir and how the wine is grown. Now, that might be different from the term minerality to say, like, does a certain soil translate into a more minerally tasting wine or a more stony and more sort of gunflinty type of wine? And I mean, our whole brain, the way it works is it could also, that correlation could loosely be there. Sometimes people can maybe, their brain can trigger that to to leap into what they're actually, you know, helping them make sense of what they're actually tasting and smelling, right? So one of the things you like to talk about is like the absence of aromatic compounds and like the non-fruit aromas, like in terms of minerality. How would you define that? Yeah, when I think of minerally wines, sometimes 
what it ends up being in my mind is a lack, <laughs> a lack of fruity, floral flavors. And you normally think of minerally as white wine, although there's some red wines like maybe Old World Pinot Noir or Cabernet Francs that you would list as mineral red wines. But often you think of white wines. You know, one thing could be like uh, Italian whites that are often fairly neutral. They're high acid they're slightly citrusy but not you don't get a whole lot of flavor to them and without those big heavy floral ester components or terpenes that have that maybe grapefruity or other kind of like really pungent smells to them if you don't call it fruity you almost call it mineral and that's almost like the positive way of saying hey this is a kind of neutral wine and it's not a bad wine it's a fantastic wine but it doesn't have those real strong fruity flavors. So I'm going to call it mineral as a positive way of talking about it. Yeah. The other place where I sometimes think about mineral wines that is slightly different is that salty component. So I'm thinking of like a Certico and Albarinos or even uh, Muscadets that can kind of get that sea salts that are transferred onto the grape skins from oceanic breezes and that actually make it into the wine as they're going through fermentation. And you can get that slight saline. Now you can't really smell salt, but you can smell salty things that kind of trigger and help you think of other things that are like mineral aromas. There's no real chalk in champagne in terms of in the wine, but it somehow elicits either a texture or, or smelling those things into it. And, and I'm not sure how much that is my brain versus actually being put into the wine. And so I think for salts, though, it's actually possible to get into the wine from where the grape is grown. Well, and the interesting thing is a lot of those examples that you just listed are wines that tend to be fairly neutral, don't have a really strong fruity floral flavor component to them. So you mentioned like Assyrtico or some of the other wines. I think of like Etna, maybe Etna Bianco, right, in Sicily. They're amazing wines, but part of their element is not being overly fruity and that sort of, so then when you describe what their wines taste like, they tend to taste very minerally. Got it. So it's the antithesis of fruit. Yeah, in some ways. I think it is it is a distinct character. And I think when we think about the character, you know, if we think fruity as a big of a category as minerally, there's different subsets of minerally, just like there's subsets of fruity, right? You have uh, minerally as in um, sort of wet rock and stone. You have that reductive aspect in terms of... Um, gunflint and matchstick and then you might have some like of that saline thing that you lead to or that saltiness in, in some ways so or you talk about like chablis that seashell i'm not sure that might play into the whole west stone area but there's these different categories and then there's even subcategories in that just like there are fruity you have red fruit and cranberry raspberry red cherry all that kind of thing Right. Okay. So you the more nuanced breakdown of, of that term. But you mentioned a couple here in terms of that flinty gun smoke and matchstick. That's winemaking, right? That's re- least contact, re- lack of oxygens, reductive winemaking, volatile sulfur compounds. Like what is going on there? Like, because it seems like that's also been a trend, at least in some of the new world regions to kind of mimic that style. And that doesn't necessarily make their, those wines mineral, minerally, but it's in that same vein. I think it's related to winemaking as well as terroir and the climate that wines are grown, right? So if you look at it from a very chemistry perspective, 
it comes back to those sulfur compounds and that reduction or lack of oxygen in winemaking. And if you have higher acid and less fruit components from being less ripe grapes, or maybe there's the grape varieties themselves that have less of those esters and terpenes in them, you may have a higher probability or chance of having those minerally reductive components in them. Because if you have a higher acid wine from a cooler climate with less of the esters, you have less of the fruit components, you have higher acid, which generally leads to higher levels of free sulfur, which have more of an antioxidant component and more reductive capabilities and characteristics to them. And so you end up with a wine that ends up tasting a lot. So there's a combination of both the terroir and the winemaking that that are involved in that. Right. And speaking of winemaking, obviously there's been a, a large movement towards more natural fermentation vessels and obviously wood's still a natural product, but they are shaped and toasted. And so you're, you're going to get, it's clear you're going to get infusion of flavors from a wood barrel, even if it's a used barrel, but you're also going to get it from concrete and things like amphora that can leach out certain minerals, like from the clays, they can be leaching out potassium that can translate into the wine and have some usually visual side effects to it, but also potentially detectable on the palate or increased trace amounts. But again, nothing that's going to be that is coming from that vessel. It's not necessarily coming from anything else. And I think that maybe a lot of people associate that and then these textures that you're going to get by using these different types of fermentation vessels, they somehow translate that into a mineral sense as well. Yeah. And are you calling a concrete a very natural vessel? Oh, maybe I. Yeah. It might be a little human derived there, but but for <laughs> but for sure those unlined concretes, which are really popular now, whether it's the eggs or some other shape, and often you have to coat it with acid, right, to kind of protect the wine from the concrete. And, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, epoxy. You know, old school was like fiberglass line, like in Italy, right, and, and all that. Beeswax in, in some of the amphora stuff, which totally. actually gets its own flavor potentially. But wine with its acids and everything else can often leach in and pull some things out. And so I've often seen wines that are um, unlined concrete age. They sometimes need time in barrel after that in order to round themselves out and not have too much of that literally concrete taste in them. Right, and, and that can also translate to texture. So like, I firmly believe that good tasters with enough practice can detect the different fermentation vessels that a lot of the wines in if they were in it for any significant duration, whether that's a, a barrel, a neutral barrel, concrete tanks, amphora, they can taste that somehow. Okay, so let's talk a little bit in terms of like, when people largely mention mineral wines, where are they usually referring to these type of wines coming from? Because it seems like from my experience that they're they're kind of isolated in, in some specific areas. I almost always think old world. You're thinking generally like the neutral, more high acid whites for the most part. Looking at some of the articles that are out there, the Wine Society talks about, has a an interesting article that actually talks about the taste of minerality. And then they have a subsequent article that talks about what wines are associated with minerality. And then, of course, being a retailer in the UK, they try to sell some of those wines. And those are like Chablis, Sauvignon Blanc, which is probably not New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, but like Sancerre and things of that nature. Grunor Veltliner, Alvarino, Shannon. And then for the reds, more like Pinot Noir, Again, mostly old world, probably Burgundy, uh, Sancerre, and Alsace, perhaps. 
maybe Germany, Cabernet Franc. And then Food and Wine also had an article on minerality and showcased some wines that were more like Riesling, which is a real generate this back to your point about some people associate minerality with the rocks that they're grown in or that terroir association with it and Riesling being a big conduit of terroir, but Riesling, and then they talked about Chablis again, and then Assyrtico, which you mentioned earlier, which is a very minerally wine out of Santorini. Yeah, I mean, I also think that when people talk about minerally wines or minerality in wines, they're often referring to wines that are at in a marginal climate. So, which kind of leads into your point in terms of less fruit aromas, right? So, if, if the grapevines struggle to get the grapes ripe or barely get the grapes ripe enough to make wine, which is where a lot of the most famous regions for each grape variety are, if you're looking at obviously Chardonnay in Chablis or in Burgundy in general, and then looking at Pinot Noir there, Syrah even in, in Cote Roti, Riesling and Mosul, and these are relatively cold climates and that marginal nature seems to reduce the fruit components, which potentially allows that terroir or that mineral note to to speak to those wines, to your earlier point. But I, I'm trying to think of, there's not a lot of new world examples where I can think of, maybe there's a couple of things in New Zealand in like uh, central Otago where it's, it's a marginal climate for Pinot Noir. Well, if we think about minerality and the subcomponents being like reduction, that saline note, or the whetstone element, I think there's definitely some Great varieties that come into the whetstone element, some of the Albarino or other Chenin Blanc, kind of more neutral grape varieties. There's winemakers who are making Chardonnay in a more reductive style, where you get that gumflint note, even in the New World, like you see Kuma River in New Zealand or Saratas and you know Sonoma or a bunch of other people in California are also doing that. And so some people are trying to use winemaking style to get a minerally to- tone, even in the new world. But for sure, it's in, as we talked about, more cool climate, less fruit-intensive wines that end up being a more minerally style. So in terms of a tasting note, when I write tasting notes, I, I try to avoid the word mineral or minerality because... It can mean lots of things to a lot of different people. I definitely try to call out more specific, like, hey, is this a reduction note? Or is this a, am I getting a gravelly note? I try to be a little bit more specific. Or if it's salt, like you obviously can't smell salt, but I'll be like salted meat. I'm just trying to reference what my brain is connecting it to. Or is it a saltine cracker? You know, those are very different smells in my mind, but they're they're both a salt component to them is, is a key thing. Salted nut, they're all slightly nuanced and different. And I try to call those out because they could have different root sources, whether it's the winemaking, the lease contact, or what vessel it was in and things like that. And, and definitely those are kind of the terms I look for. Some people have mentioned citrus like that. I think if you, in a red wine, especially if I hear like orange zest or something like that, or blood orange in a red wine, I think of that as potentially like a a minerality term or like these kind of like earthy Amaro things that uh, can sometimes be in red wines. And what about you? What do you think about in terms of what are tasting notes? Do you use the word minerality generally in a tasting note or do you like to break it down further? Yeah, I think when you're a super taster like you, Robert, you break it down further. But I think for the average taster, it is a term that is a macro term, just like fruity might be a macro term, right? So I like a fruity style of wine. And yeah, there's a lot of subcomponents within fruity, but the alternative is it's minerally and there's subcomponents within minerally, all the ones you just talked about, whether that's that 
gunflint matchstick reduction or a flinty chalkiness like wet stone or a saline kind of component. There's different subcomponents of that. And I think minerality is useful in the sense that it says this is a whole area. And sometimes when either you're not that skilled in terms of a taster or you're not that sure and you kind of get this broader sense but not necessarily the real specific it's hard for you to tease out what which for me is often like i'm like okay what am i tasting here but i I get a broader sense that it's mineral but i don't necessarily get the specific component usually i'm thinking like stony whetstone but not always right and when i have that reduction character but it's not quite gunflint matchsticky i'm in my mind like what do I call this? And let me just put it as mineral because that's like, you know. Because when's the last time you smelled gun smoke? <laughs> yeah, like, well, <laughs> for sure. But or and, a stone. <laughs> and, Yeah, and that's like close enough, right? I'm like, I'm in the category. It's in that bucket. That's, you know, what I'm tasting, but it's not necessarily as specific as I would love to be if I could be. And so for me, there are things that I smell, but when I taste the wines, there can be a texture component that helps it click in a little bit more for me in terms of connecting those dots. For you, is it something you smell and taste or something you mainly taste? I think it's both. I often get that smell and or lack of smell because I don't smell a lot of floral. I don't smell a lot of fruity. So I'm like, what do I get out of this wine, right? I'm smelling this wine. I'm like, what am I going to write? I have to write a tasting note. What do I write? And I don't smell anything, so I can write neutral, which I I might write, but then I'll also write minerally or like stony because, yeah, it's almost that like lack of fruit. No, no fruit crossing out. It's mineral. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) You have to write something, right? (laughs) You need to write something because if you're taking an exam, you need to have points, right? You need to write something and so you write like mineral, right? Well, I don't smell any fruit or like flowers, so I'm going to just write stone, right? Or like whetstone, mineral, mineral, whetstone. That should be fine, right? Because who the hell knows what the hell whetstone tastes like, right? Exactly. I like like this deep insight to the MW uh, tasting exams. Yeah, Uh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So for this episode, we actually used Instagram stories to let some viewer or listeners to ask some questions what they had about minerality and all kind of bounces back and forth. So I'll, I'll throw the first one to you, Peter. So what brings minerality into a wine and how do you spot it as a taster? I think it's the flavor profile, as we talked about, could be a lack of flavor. And I think there's both the winemaking techniques as well as the terroir, as well as the grape variety that naturally lend itself to having a more minerally taste, whether that mineral is that gunflint, whether that's the whetstone, whether that's the saline components, all those things, if you categorize into mineral, could be coming from both winemaking techniques as well as terroir. And how do you spot it? Well, same thing as you do any other kind of wine flavor and and profile, You, you smell it and you see. And as you said, we're not licking rocks or doing other thing every day, but it's that picture in your mind of what you think those things should taste and smell like. Right. You're going back to childhood memories. Uh, right. In a right. Yeah. So, um, okay. So the next one, how would you classify minerality in a wine and causes? I think we've covered a lot of this. I'll field this one. So for me, I'm really looking for a couple of kind of general things. I'm looking for a salty component. There's also sometimes a textural component. 
I'm looking for types of rocks or this kind of like smoky, flinty note, sometimes a seashell. The other one I would say is like the if there's a lot of dry extract into wine or if it has had a long time on the lees, you'll get these these textural notes that are quite different. And I try to describe each of those in terms of like how I'm relating to that texture. And I often use the word like chalky or powdery or things like that to help describe what it is. And then the other one is that sometimes there's like, they're often related to high acid wines. And so there's this kind of like tenacity and verve of a wine that can kind of ripple through. And that's, and those all have different causes. And, and I try to boil it down to usually what is the winemaking cause for that, or what is the environmental cause in some cases but for the most part, I'm, I'm almost never saying, very rarely on my tasting this one, it's like, I know this came from volcanic soil because this is what volcanoes taste like. <laughs> I'm never doing that. Just It's just not, A, not how my brain works, and B, there's no science to back up that you can actually do that. I think that if, if you can taste, especially if you're looking at things like Austria, where there's a gruner in two different soil types, you can taste the difference, but is that the only factor that's been locked down? And that's, that's rare. And so I just don't click like that. I just explain what is right in front of me, and hopefully then I try to then use some deductive reasoning to try to get there in terms of what I'm actually getting. Okay, this is a good question. Explain how minerals and soils can't be present in wine, but elements of them can be. The minerals get drawn up through the roots, right? Literal minerals like potassium or nitrogen or phosphorus, and those are the main ones. And then there's a bunch of other micronutrients, magnesium and calcium and so forth, iron that get drawn up through the roots into the soil to feed the plant, feed the vine, and feed the grapes that come from it. But they don't necessarily have taste or flavor or impact the flavor of the wines as much. Because often a lot of the flavors is this really complex set of components in wines, in the, both the skin of the wine, mostly, and then somewhat in the juice and the flesh of the wine, that they're really small micro components and much smaller concentrations that really do impact the flavor and the taste of the wine. And then you have things that where some of these things might have it, because if you have a lot of potassium, you might precipitate a lot of acid and you might not have a very acidic wine, acid then could impact the level of free sulfur in the wine or the different chemical reactions that happen in the wine. The last question that was asked was, can it be objectively measured and quantified? Yeah, you can measure trace elements of these micronutrients that Peter had just talked about in wines. Can you taste them? Can you measure anything that is is changing from the different soil types? I mean, yeah, you could detect different acid levels. Uh, again, if something's going to be in a, in a lime, if a Chardonnay in a limestone soil versus a clay soil, you're going to, it's most likely going to result, assuming you make similar picking decisions at certain times, that you're going to have a slightly higher acid wine from the grapes that are in the limestone soil. But sure, there's parts that can be quantified and measured, but it's really hard to tell because there's so many other factors that go in there. So simple answer would be no. You can't really measure it and you really can't really quantify it. I think there's still more studies to happen that will help answer some of these questions. For sure. But for some of the elements, like the some of the reductive elements generating from sulfur compounds. Sure, you can measure those. You can yeah. definitely measure some of those. So some of those are more scientific and not scientific, but more measurable, right? And if you have more reduction, more least contact in the wines, you might be able to measure more sulfur compounds that you can 
Yeah, so you can measure those. And so sometimes they can be present, but they may not always be perceptible depending on how fruity the wine is or how much oak is on the wine and what else is covering those things up. So I think it's an interesting nuance because I actually, I've had winemakers, in the especially in the old world, uh, tell me it's like, well, you have to wait for the primary fruit flavors to start to fade away to really <laughs> start to show the soil and terroir and minerality of, of these wines. And I'm like, okay, so you're using neutral oak or stainless steel and you're kind of waiting for those things to to fade so you can show the terroir, show those mineral elements, but then you have to catch it before it becomes another these tertiary, these kind of like dried out flavors. So that's a very old world mentality. Well, I think that's the whole point of minerally wines being like non-fruity or like a style of wine, right? So they they're actually going for that style. They're trying to give some of their white wines or other things, a little more oxidation, trying to let some of the fruit and the volatile esters that you know are more prone to escaping with air escape, right? And, and be less present in the wines versus being a very like maybe low temperature fermented and inert stainless steel vessel to try to trap all those esters in and make it a very more fruity wine. They're going for the opposite and crafting their winemaking techniques in that way to have a quote-unquote more minerally wine. So a couple things. So let's talk about in terms of selling point. Let's move into this category. So obviously you talked about it as a high-level category. Have you seen examples of that in more mass market wines or is this really kind of a more niche, kind of like narrow-focused wine, like a more of a fine wine? No, I think you definitely see it in mass market wines. I almost see it as more old world, new world, right? So if you have a mass market Muscadet or even some of the Chablis or other things where that's the style. That's part of the style of that wine. And that's what people recognize it for. It's there and it's fine and that's great. And that's part of what it is and what you expect from it. And and it's there. And that's part of the selling points of that wine. Right. I guess you could say the same thing for like an entry level Chablis from one of the big producers. You're going to be able to find that stylistically that, that you could define that as mineral there. So the other area is as a classification technique, I have seen some interesting ways of breaking up wine lists or small wine lists at restaurants where they're kind of like the Psalm has basically categorized some wine to help guide you to a high level category. And then you can choose a wine within that category. What's interesting when I see people do that is actually choose some really off the beaten path things when they when you go into that, the other than fruit category or this mineral character, mineral group of wines, you can really get a, a wide mix of things that are going to be off the beaten path for a lot of tasters when you go to a restaurant, whenever we're allowed to go back to those. Yeah, and they often call them like fruity or big and bold or smooth or whatnot or lean and crisp. What It's shocking or surprising, perhaps, that we haven't seen a lot actually call them minerally, right? And even some retailers will have organized their store in that way, right? Here's your big and bold wines, you know, your Napa Cabernets or even Bordeaux or other things, your fruity wines, and then you're kind of like lean and crisp or really floral or other things. But I haven't seen yet, but I would expect, or I don't know why it wouldn't be that people would call it, have a category called minerally. Didn't you say Wine Society in the UK, the retailer there had a category for mineral wines? Well, they had an article that sold wines in that way based on another article that talked about what does minerally mean. So I think they are definitely thinking down that route. But I don't know. It hasn't definitely not become prevalent or very common yet. I've seen a few wines with it mineral in the name. But usually if a winemaker wants to convey 
they have a mineral, less fruit-driven wine, a more mineral-driven wine. How are they conveying that to consumers? I'm not sure people are very good at that. There's definitely the wines and the labels that talk about the soil type. And to the extent people associate mineral and soil type together, that comes into play. We think about in the Loire, Didier Dagonos, Silex, or Moulinou in South Africa, they have wines that come from the different soil types like schist and granite and iron and all this sort of stuff. Or Dr. Lucian with the blue slate and the red slate, which is exactly the, his dry wines versus his fruity wines. Yeah, but I'm not sure that that necessarily associates with the style of what we would call minerally. So that's no, definitely sure. associated yeah. with the the soil type. And the yeah, soil yeah. type might lead to a different style of wine or a different flavor profile, but not necessarily type For of sure. I actually think it's more about the color. We talked with uh, Ernie Lucen. He was basically saying, or Ernst Lucen, he was saying that the blue slate, you know, is better for, you know, longer hang times, more botrytis. And something about the red slate, I'm not sure if it's because it's absorbing more heat or something like that or different altitudes, but that was better for drier wines. And that was just something that they've determined over time. It wasn't like they're like, we must, <laughs> we must make this dry wine, beca- a dry wine because it's on a red slate. I think it was just, they've had so much history of growing grapes that they figured out what's worked. And it happens to be a strong correlation with that soil type for the style of wine that they're producing. But whether those wines are mineral or not, it's a whole different conversation. So one of the key things that we should talk about being a podcast about the business of wine is, does the term minerally sell wine? What do you think, Robert? So there, uh, yeah, I mean, and people are using the term all the time. And I think people are curious about what does that mean and, and try to seek those terms out. I also think that I often consider mineral wines to be old world wines. And if, if you want to learn about the world of wine, you really have to start with a lot of the old world to kind of give you a foundation because no, you, you've been to every other, you know, producer in California that you go and there's like, oh, this is like a Bordeaux style. And when you're in Napa or you're in Sonoma, they're like, oh, we're emulating Burgundy. And it's like, this is very Burgundian. And it's like, you have to taste those wines, which are inherently often a higher chance of them being minerally. And clearly when you go to a restaurant, if you go to a nice restaurant and there's a psalm or someone's curated a list for you, they're they're trying to get you to try things and they seem to like these wines as well, whether it's Beaujolais or Muscadets or stuff from the Loire and so they're or Austria, they're touting these wines. So in some way, I think they are selling wines because of the term mineral, because when they go to explain it, it's all over the verbal tasting notes that they're giving you or anything you read online. Yeah, I think that's they definitely like that style of wine, and it is a style of wine. And and from that perspective, it's a way to communicate to consumers a certain style of wine, and whether they like that or not and want to buy that or not, that's a way to communicate that to them. So in during research, we did read about Randall Graham's experiment in the early 2000s about trying to force minerality by suspending different types of rocks inside uh, his Cigar Le Volant wine from Bonnie Dune. And trying to be able to sell that, but apparently that got shut down by the FDA or alcohol. But you're tra- still going to uh, request some samples, right? I would totally taste these in small doses. <laughs> I don't know Doesn't matter how much <laughs> arsenic is in it, you still want to try it? <laughs> for science, Peter, for science. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's definitely interesting Like that people are, are trying to emulate these styles. Uh, I think infusing them in a teabag is maybe a little extreme. But yeah, we've kind of rambled on here in a more of a conversation, which I've enjoyed. So I hope the listeners have enjoyed it. But let's go into our lasting trend and fizzling fad on minerality. Do you want to start? Yeah, I think in terms of a lasting trend, 
using the term minerality as a term and as a style of wine with different subcomponents to it, to your point, if people want to be more specific, is something that will continue on. I think it does have meaning. I think it does have value in the sense that it does have meaning and helps communicate a certain style of wine. In terms of a fizzling fad, I think it's going to be people who are trying to craft, literally craft, very overly reductive Chardonnays to get that quote-unquote minerally matchstick gunflint note from anywhere in the world, no matter what the terroir is. There's some terroirs, you know, in Burgundy and other places that really fit that well. And there's others that I think people are trying to force fit and it doesn't quite, all you get is a reductive quote-unquote minerally wine that may not be the best expression of that place. What's your lasting trend in Fizzling fed, Robert. I definitely think we're going to keep seeing rock types pop up on the labels. I think it is, especially in the new world, I think there's a lot of people, you know, the old world has the advantage where a lot of the soils are are known quite deeply. Now, does that make a mineral wine? Not necessarily, but I think that that interesting distinction may be soft speak for saying, hey, this is a more mineral driven wine, or, or at least taste these two wines side by side so you can see what the difference is. And I think that that trend will keep going. And, and actually, you will start to see it happen with a lot more new world wines. And in terms of fizzling fat, I don't think a lot of producers are going to call their wines mineral themselves. I think they're going to leave that to the bloggers and the critics and everybody else, because I think it's it's squishy and it means a lot of things. And it's it's almost the ultimate marketing term because you can't define it. And it could mean lots of things. And the tasters may or may not perceive it. So I, th- I think that people will stay away from putting that even in their tasting notes on the back of the bottles and, and that they're going to leave that for other people to wax on poetically about and not use it in their own uh, marketing lingo. It's an interesting topic that we learned a lot about. Yeah, I hope everybody's enjoyed this uh rant, I guess, on minerality more than an in-depth expose. But thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, take care. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.